Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. We will hear argument first this morning in application 21A244, National Federation of Independent Business versus the Department of Labor and the Consolidated Case. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm James Ramoser, the editor of SCOTUS Blog, filling in this week for Amy Howe. With nationwide COVID-19 infections spiking to the highest levels of the pandemic, the Supreme Court will decide how much authority federal agencies have to require or encourage vaccinations. On Friday, January 7th, the justices heard nearly four hours of oral arguments in two cases challenging major Biden administration vaccine measures. One case involves a vaccine or test policy for large employers, and that was issued by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The other involves a COVID vaccine mandate for workers at healthcare facilities that receive federal funding. That mandate was issued by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. As we're recording this on Friday afternoon, Amy is tied up writing about the arguments for SCOTUS blog, so I'm pinch hitting for her and joining me to break down the arguments is Sean Murata, a partner at Hogan Levels and an appellate litigator. He's an expert on health law and administrative law and has been following both cases closely. Welcome, Sean. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks. Great to be here. So can you just start out by explaining briefly the two policies at issue in these cases? The OSHA vaccine or test mandate applies essentially to every worker at all employers that have over 100 employees in the United States. There are certain exemptions for certain employees that only work outside or certain employees that work by themselves. But by and in large, if you work with an employer that has 100 or more employees, you are required to either receive a vaccine course or you have to test weekly and you have to do so at your own expense. You also have to wear a mask while at the workplace. The CMS mandate, by contrast, uh, that's enforced by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services requires essentially all healthcare workers at covered facilities to receive a vaccine course unless they receive an approved medical or religious exemption. So that is long-term care facilities, that is hospitals. The main exemption is individual doctor's offices. But otherwise, if you're a healthcare worker, you're covered by that mandate. Right. And how many total workers do the two policies cover? They cover millions, each of them, though quite different. Uh, The OSHA policy covers upwards of 80 million workers and is a large portion of the privately employed workforce in the United States. The CMS mandate, by contrast, covers about 10 million workers. And what are the primary objections to the policies? There are three primary objections to the policies. And although they were issued under different statutes, they tend to overlap. The first set of objections is essentially that the statutes that these agencies operate under do not allow these mandate policies. Both of the statutes involve the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, as well as the Social Security Act, which includes the Medicare and Medicaid programs, where, of course, 
promulgated years and decades before anybody had ever heard of COVID. And so what the challengers argue is that there is nothing in these statutes that expressly authorize federal agencies to require people to be vaccinated. Uh, the federal government responds to that, that both of these statutes include very broad powers. OSHA, for instance, has the power to protect workers against new hazards that pose grave dangers in the workplace. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has the power to issue regulations to carry out the Medicare and Medicaid programs, as well as uh, regulations that protect the health and safety of Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. But under what's called the major questions doctrine, the challengers argue that when there is a policy that is of dramatic political, social, and economic importance, the statutes have to be unusually clear before you would view an agency as having the power to exercise unprecedented powers on behalf of the federal government. So the challengers would say that these broad grants of authority can't be read to encompass a vaccine or testing mandate. The second argument that's made was the lack of public participation. Generally in administrative law, you have to tell the public what you're planning to do give them a chance to give you feedback on that proposal, and then respond to their comments when you take final action. Essentially, you have to take public comments into account. Both of these mandates were issued without public participation, which is sometimes allowed under the statutes, but under narrow circumstances. So one of the arguments today was whether the COVID-19 pandemic at the current point is one of those rare circumstances that authorize issuing a rule without public participation. And then finally, the challengers have argued that these mandates are arbitrary and capricious, which is a fancy way of saying they don't make sense. Um, they argue on the OSHA side that the government didn't consider uh, the effect on the economy from losing lar uh, percentages of the workforce who would choose to be fired rather than test and vaccinate. Also on the CMS side, there's an argument that the federal government didn't adequately consider the effect on staffing, particularly in rural areas where there's greater vaccine resistance, and that the government didn't consider alternatives such as imposing a test requirement or perhaps requiring mandatory masking, uh, masking in the healthcare setting. And before we sort of drill down into the substance of some of those challenges and how the arguments went, I think it's important to just sort of frame these cases as occurring in the context of the largest surge in COVID-19 cases that we've seen since the pandemic began. We heard Justice Breyer mention some of those statistics repeatedly during both arguments in which he invoked you know, the hundreds of thousands of cases that we're now seeing per day caused, of course, by the, the Omicron variant. I mean, there, there are three quarters of a million new cases yesterday. New cases, nearly three quarters, 700 and some odd thousand, okay? That's 10 times as many as when OSHA put this rule in. The hospitals are today, yesterday, full, almost to the point of the maximum they've ever been uh, in this disease, okay? And you heard references, studies, I mean, uh, they, they vary, but uh, uh, some of them say that uh, the hospitalization is 90 percent or maybe 60 percent or maybe 80 percent, but a big percent filled up yesterday or the day before uh, with people who were not vaccinated. So, Sean, to what extent, if any, do you think 
that the current state of COVID-19 in America will affect the justices thinking on these policies. We saw today at the court a pretty strong division between uh, the liberal wing of the court, Justices Breyer, uh, Sotomayor, and Kagan, who I think saw it as inconceivable that uh, these vaccine mandates could be on the wrong side of any principle of administrative law or statutory interpretation, given the gravity of the circumstances facing uh, America right now. On the other side, I think you saw the very conservative justices, Justices Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch, adhere to their view that even in a pandemic, they need to adhere to what they see as the proper separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. And their view that the judicial branch isn't going to set public health policy, but it is going to enforce what it sees as the traditional role of the states and of Congress in setting out broad vaccine and public health mandates rather than ceding it to what they view as unelected bureaucrats. It was a very stark, I think, division on the court, whereas you had one group of justices who saw this as an easy and undisputable uh, exercise of administrative power, and another group of justices who see it as a encroachment of bureaucratic authority on the traditional powers of states and Congress. One group was very focused on the practical realities of COVID, whereas I think another group was very worried about the broader implications for federal state relations and the size of the administrative state. There's so much we should we could talk about here. Sean, who do you think will be the pivotal justices? We're certainly going to be looking at the three median justices, the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett. They're the justices that, although they're generally classified as being conservative, have throughout the pandemic really seen a trade-off or a balance between taking COVID seriously and taking seriously the need to impose restrictions to control COVID, but also have on the other side some concerns about the size of the administrative state. And, you know, certainly there are three votes against the mandates and there are three votes for the mandates. The question is going to be which one of those two wings of the court is going to pick off two votes to make a majority. And the answer may well be different between the OSHA and CMS mandates. That's what we saw today, that the court does not view these mandates in the exact same way. Could you elaborate on that? What are the differences in in how the two arguments went? The difference in the two arguments comes down to how different the court saw the two programs as being. The CMS program, although it's a vaccine mandate, is really a condition of participation in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. If you're a hospital or a nursing home and you want to participate in Medicare and Medicaid, you have to agree to certain conditions when you sign up, which means that you have to agree to be staffed by doctors and skilled nurses and really a whole host of conditions. And if you don't want to be subject to those conditions, you don't have to participate in the programs. Now, that's perhaps an overly simplified way to put it, because hospitals will tell you that participation in Medicare and Medicaid makes the difference between being in business and out of business. But the way the justices saw it, particularly those three median justices and their questions is, look, you have to comply with all sorts of requirements. Um, If CMS can require that your nurses wear gloves when they deal with patients, why can't they require that your nurses have a vaccine when they deal with patients? As Justice Kagan uh, very memorably put it, 
All the secretary is saying is the one thing you can't do is kill your patients. You know what? Basically, the, the one thing you can't do is to kill your patients. So you have to get, you have to get vaccinated so that you're not transmitting the disease that can kill elderly Medicare patients, that can kill sick Medicaid patients. I mean, that seems like a pretty basic infection prevention measure. And I think particularly the justices who are aware of the particular vulnerabilities in the healthcare setting uh, saw it as quite different than OSHA, where it wasn't a condition of participation in a program. Rather, it's a direct regulation of American workplaces. And it doesn't apply to just a particularly vulnerable setting like hospitals and nursing homes, but to literally every employer that hires more than 100 people. In fact, one thing we saw in the OSHA argument is that the median justices were suggesting that if OSHA had come in with a particularly narrow or tailored rule and said, think of the meatpacking plant where people work shoulder to shoulder on the production floor chopping up carcasses, you might think that those people need vaccines in a way that 100 people who work in an office building don't. So in many ways, I think the chief justice summed up the divisions in the court well when he was saying that he might be willing to support a narrow and tailored mandate that was targeted at particularly vulnerable populations, but he was very skeptical of what he called trying to cover the waterfront. I don't think as more and more mandates and more and more agencies come into place, it's a little hard to accept the idea that this is particularized to this thing. To have every federal agency flip through the statute book and see how they could try to get Americans vaccinated. He called it a workaround, uh, that although the government doesn't have the power to mandate directly that every, every American be vaccinated, maybe they could find enough statutory authorities to effectively get most Americans vaccinated. I mean, this has been referred to uh, the approach as a workaround. Yeah, Justice Barrett also followed up on the chief's suggestion. I think what you're saying is that even if there are some industries or some people who would face a great risk, and this might be necessary to address that risk, so in other words, if OSHA had adopted a more targeted rule, you might not be contesting that, or you would not be contesting that, that the problem here is its scope and that there's no differentiation between the risk faced by unvaccinated 22-year-olds and unvaccinated 60-year-olds or industries. You were just talking about landscapers and people who work primarily outdoors, those and um, workers who work in an inside environment all day long. In your opinion, is there any way in this procedural posture for the court to somehow uphold the policy or allow the policy to remain in effect for some workplaces but not others? Is there like a middle ground way to a narrow ruling here? I don't think there's a middle ground ruling that would allow the court to slice and dice the existing OSHA mandate. What I do think the court might do is invite OSHA when it issues a final standard, because remember that the mandate that's before the court right now is an emergency temporary standard that can only be in effect for six months. What it could signal to OSHA is, is that when it's going back and working on its final standard, maybe one that is tailored to the meat packers. And in fact, I think it was quite telling that when they were coming up with examples where it might be justified, both the justices and Scott Keller, who was representing the private businesses uh, challenging the OSHA mandate, healthcare facilities might pass muster. 
what I would expect if the court goes down that path is that if they enjoin the mandate in its current form, they might lay out guidelines as to how the administration might narrowly tailor the rule to pass muster on a second go around. Yeah. So another interesting and notable difference between the two cases is that with respect to the OSHA mandate, the challengers include Republican-led states, as well as numerous businesses and business groups that don't want to be subject to the policy. But with respect to the CMS vaccine mandate, um, the challengers are primarily states, but are but do not include the actual regulated healthcare facilities themselves. And Justice Kavanaugh pointed that out at argument when he remarked. First, this is an unusual uh, administrative law situation from my uh, experience because the people who are regulated are not here complaining uh, about the regulation. The the hospitals and healthcare organizations, uh, it's a very unusual situation. They, in fact, overwhelmingly uh, appear to support uh, the secretary's um, the CMS regulation. So I want, and the government makes something of that. Uh, what, what are we to make of that? Typically, you have the industry itself complaining about regulations, but here they haven't really done so. Sean, you represent the American Hospital Association, the major hospital trade group. Um, can you say a little bit about why? Healthcare facilities haven't challenged the CMS policy. The AHA, for example, did not participate in this case at all, right? You guys didn't follow, file an amicus brief. That's right. Hospitals and healthcare facilities didn't, haven't challenged these rules. And I think for the simple reason that healthcare leaders are united with one voice, that they believe their staff should be vaccinated. Um, there's not a single healthcare leader that I know of that doesn't believe. 100% of their staff should be vaccinated. What they're concerned about and what the American Hospital Association and other organizations have expressed concern about to CMS is fears that if they are unable to make headroads with their staff in becoming vaccinated and have to separate a large proportion of their staff, they could be left without staff during particularly difficult times of the year, such as the winter, where you're gonna face a double whammy of COVID and flu. What was reassuring from Brian Fletcher, the principal deputy solicitor general, who was arguing in favor of the CMS mandate, is that he said from the podium that CMS enforces its mandate with enforcement discretion and that hospitals and healthcare facilities that are creating vaccine policies and working in good faith to get their staff vaccinated don't have to fear significant enforcement you're not going to be terminated from the Medicare and Medicaid programs if you're working really hard at vaccination but just haven't been able to meet the standard quite yet. And that's the balance that healthcare facilities are looking for. But at the end of the day, what really came out of the arguments was the best way to protect yourself, protect your families, and protect your loved ones, and protect your communities is to get vaccinated. Uh, and it was notable that practically all of the advocates, even those challenging the mandates, emphasize that people should get vaccinated. And that's the message you're hearing from healthcare leaders as well. Yeah. Another thing that we should mention is the remarkable optics of the argument this morning and the context in which 
they occurred. So neither you nor I were actually in the courtroom um, because the court was closed to, to all but a few uh, journalists. Two out of the six lawyers arguing did so remotely. Two of the challengers to the policies, um, the Solicitor General of Ohio and the Solicitor General of Louisiana, both argued by phone, presumably because of positive COVID tests. Eight justices took the bench on Friday morning. Seven of them were wearing masks, with Neil Gorsuch being the only justice not wearing a mask. And the ninth justice, Sonia Sotomayor, chose to participate in the arguments remotely from her chambers. And um, Sotomayor, of course, uh, it's well known, has lifelong diabetes and so is at heightened risk from COVID. And, and she actually just chose not to take the bench at all. She participated very actively by phone. The masking practice by the justices was quite the departure because since the court has returned to in-person arguments during the pandemic, Sotomayor is the only justice who has been consistently wearing a mask. So it was interesting that seven of her colleagues chose to wear masks on Friday. But what do you make of the irony of this these arguments occurring in this context where two of the very lawyers challenging the policies tested positive themselves and the justices obviously have seen fit to take more precautions for themselves than they were taking even last month. I think what the challengers would say is that these cases are not about what individual and private businesses should be doing or what even state governments should necessarily be doing, but rather about whether the federal government um, is allowed to issue these mandates. And I think what was telling was, with perhaps the exception of Liz Merrill, who was surprisingly anti-vaccine in her argument, all of the challenger's attorneys began their arguments essentially with saying, we're pro-vaccine, but. Uh, but what it also shows is that the threat of COVID remains real, and a great majority of everyone who spoke at the court today agrees the threat of COVID is real. A lot of it just comes down to how do you think we take existing statutory authorities and fit them to an unprecedented circumstance? Just a couple more questions. Sean, you live tweeted all four hours of the arguments today, which I must say was was yeoman's work. And um, you know, as someone who has live tweeted arguments before, it, it, it can be very difficult. And you provided really excellent uh, sort of instantaneous analysis of what we were hearing through the audio feed. What's your bottom line prediction of how these cases might come out? And how quickly do you think that we will see rulings? It's always hard to predict from moral argument what the outcome is going to be. I always caveat that the justices are trying to influence their colleagues. They're testing out theories. Sometimes they're even asking honest questions. But with all those caveats, I think the CMS mandate is likely to be upheld. I think the OSHA mandate, at least in its current form, faces a much more difficult road to being upheld. But for uh, employers and employees out there who are trying to figure out timing, it's really hard to say. The court has only once in the modern history uh, heard oral argument on a stay application such as this before, so we don't have a lot of history to go on. I think the court is going to want to balance between giving an answer quickly so that the regulated parties can know what they're supposed to do. But at the same time, the court is going to want to write a thorough opinion that explains its reasoning. 
both so that justices can try to persuade their colleagues to sign on to their opinion, particularly those three key median justices, and also to explain to the public why they're allowing or not allowing these mandates to go into effect. I've been telling people we should expect something by the end of January, but honestly, that's just a guess. Sean, where, where can people find you? Uh, so I tweet at S.M. Marotta, M-A-R-O-T-T-A, on Twitter. I also have, for the American Hospital Association, a blog that uh, wraps up all my tweets, uh, wraps up my views on the oral argument, as well as uh, gathering developments on the two cases. If you type in American Hospital Association blog, we're one of the top results. So that's where you can follow all my latest. Well, Sean, thanks so much for joining us on short notice. We really appreciate your analysis of these cases. And of course, SCOTUS blog will have full coverage, both of the arguments and the rulings uh, whenever those may come. All right. Thanks so much for having me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.